Just a little word of explanation. Um, at some point during this sermon, I may well wipe my eyes. Um, for the last number of months, I've been having problems with my eyes, and um, they, they just seem to water randomly. And so um, I tend to walk around with this rather glassy-eyed look that um, went out of style, uh, at least for me, in the late 1970s. Um, <laughs> And the longer it's gone on, the more I'm beginning to wonder if it's not some sort of metaphor, some weird realization of that old Jackson Brown song, um, Doctor My Eyes. <laughs> Anyways, if you see me wiping my eyes, it may be because I've just been poked by the Holy Spirit, or it could simply be that my eyes are irritating me. Well, this is the fourth in our series on living faithfully in the empire. Uh, Some weeks ago, I attempted to set the background for the series by describing the setting in which the early Colossian believers lived, the setting which was dominated by the Roman Empire. The empire was everywhere, and it was readily apparent to all with eyes to see, from the Roman garrison to the temple dedicated to a Roman god to the image of the emperor on your money to the smell of meat being offered to a pagan god to the stories of heroes from the past. Everything reinforced that most basic fact of first century Colossae. The emperor sits on his throne, and all the world obeys him, worships him, proclaims him to be the one true Lord, the bringer of peace, the hand of justice, the provider of every good gift, and the wielder of the most powerful sword in the history of the world. Higher than him, there is no other. And over time, this understanding of the world, this basic fact of first century life, became the status quo. It became something that was accepted and taken for granted, no longer noticed, perhaps, any more than we notice the flag or think about the words and faces on our coins. Background noise, mostly, with an occasional event pushing the empire to the front of our consciousness, but then only to reassert its power and to reassure us of its greatness and so permit us to relax again, safe and secure from all alarm, leaning on the empire's everlasting arms. And so it was, and so it would be if we had not heard the strange news of Jesus of Nazareth, the strange and unbelievable news of an itinerant preacher in a tiny corner of empire whose words made the empire tremble. Now, not all at once, more like the vibration which goes unnoticed for the longest time until by its sheer persistence and the constancy of its rhythm makes the whole building sway in ways that its builder never imagined or foresaw. And when the empire did notice, it did what empires do best. It killed him. But at the moment of imperial justice in the form of a cross, at the very moment when the nails were being driven through his hands, the empire was undone. Its greatest claim that it was the bringer of life was in the cross revealed to be nothing more than a passing fancy, a myth. Because though the empire did not know it and could never have foreseen it, that Galilean preacher, that Nazarene, that peasant with the quick tongue was the very image of the invisible God, the one in whom and through whom all things came into being, even powers and principalities, even political and spiritual forces like the empire itself, even those who claim to be God, like the emperor. But the emperor could not see it. Neither could his servants. They could not see that the death of Jesus 
would reconcile the whole world to God. And so the cosmic irony, when the empire crucified Jesus at the behest of its Jewish underlings, they merely played a part in the saving of the world. God raised Jesus from the dead and then raised him up to be seated at God's right hand, there to take his place as the true ruler of the nations, before whose name every knee would one day bow, even the emperors, even Paul's, even the Colossians, even ours. And for Paul, that cross, once the symbol of Rome's ultimate authority, that cross became instead an image of grace, an image of reconciliation, foolishness to human beings, certainly to the empire. But for Paul, the very wisdom of God, life from death, and not just one life, not just Lazarus or even Jesus himself, but life, capital L, from death, capital D, once and for all. The reign of death ended for everyone and for all time, once and for all. Eternal life made available for everyone and for all time. The kind of miracle we would expect from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Sarah, Rachel, and Rebecca. The kind of miracle we would expect from the God of Naaman and the woman from Shunem. And that miracle, as Pastor Sue reminded us last week, is reenacted every time a new believer is baptized. Baptism is a death and a raising into new life in Christ. Or as Paul tells it in Colossians, it's a stripping off of the old and a putting on of the new. Nothing is ever the same again. We stand in front of the congregation and we testify to what Christ has already done in and for us. We make vows to renounce the old and to put on the new and to walk in the fullness of life in Christ and to devote ourselves to Christ and to Christ's people. And then we are washed. We are made clean. And all that came, away, came before is put away. And when we stand up again, with the water still running down our necks, we are declared to be new creations, always beloved of God, but now committed to God and to the church and to the truth of the gospel and to the work of the Spirit, dead to the world, alive in Christ, there's a finality to baptism. It marks a leaving of one set of allegiances, one set of behaviors, one way of understanding ourselves and the world around us, the old way of living and being. And there is a beginning in baptism and entering into a new allegiance, a new set of behaviors, a new way of understanding ourselves and the world around us, a new way of living and being. So if you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And here Paul speaks to the heart of the matter, the heart of the problem of discerning how to live faithfully in the empire. Paul's first century audience had already been raised with Christ. They had already received the gift of salvation, the gift of inclusion into the people of God. But the revealing of the truth, they have already received the truth of who Jesus is. That revealing has not fully come. Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, not in a throne on earth. 
The Colossians, like us, were somewhere between what Robert Benson calls the dreaming and the coming true, somewhere between the coming of Jesus to die and be raised again and the fulfillment of that redeeming work, a fulfillment still somewhere off in the future. The Colossians, like us, inhabit the space in between, a space in which the empire still seems to hold sway, a space in which death still seems to have dominion, a place still in need of healing, a place where lions hunt lambs and wolves eat cattle and the innocent are made to suffer at the hands of the powerful. It is in that space, this space, that Paul calls the Colossians to live as if the fulfillment of God's plan has already happened to take their eyes off the things of the earth, all the evidence that might lead them to believe that the empire of death is still in control, to take their eyes off those things and to turn them to the place where Jesus is, to remember who they are and who God is and what God is up to in the world and what their part is in that, to live as though what they believe is really true. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, Fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life, but now you must get rid of all those things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, in that renewal, there was no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. This is irritation. The first thing to do, Paul says, the first thing to do is to let go of all that stuff you used to believe, all that stuff you used to do. Let it die. Leave it in the grave with everything else which held you captive before your baptism, before you gave yourself over to Christ, before you were raised in him. All of that stuff belongs to death. It will kill you. So let it go. Put it to death. Or as Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmatt, the authors of Colossians Remixed, Subverting the Empire, have it. And I quote, abandon, abandon the false allegiances, the pretentious sovereignties that have held you captive. Secede from the unholy unions of power and money, genius and war, outer space and inner vacuity that distort your lives. Put to death what is earthly means. Put to death the remaining vestiges of an imperial imagination and practice that still have a grip on your lives. Put all of this to death before it kills you. And then commenting on what follows in Colossians chapter 3, Walsh and Keysmat write, and again I quote, this is a very interesting list that Paul composes. While he is concerned primarily with promiscuous, self-gratifying expressions of sexuality outside of truthful commitment, fornication, the distortion of personal character that such practice entails, impurity, uncontrollable and insatiable sexual appetite, passion, 
and a desire directed only to self-gratification, evil desire. He most evocatively concludes this whole list with greed or covetousness, which he is quick to identify with idolatry. Sexual sin, greed, and idolatry, what is the relation among these? Why end the list of sexual sins with an economic sin? Because sexual sin is fundamentally a matter of covetousness, an insatiable, self-gratifying greed that has the control and consumption of the other person as its ultimate desire. Sexual sin is not sin because it is sexual, but because it is invariably covetous. It replaces the pleasure and sexual enjoyment of two people in a loving relationship with a self-centered gratification of sexual longings that can never be fulfilled apart from commitment. Such sin breaks the back of trust that is at the heart of community, and it is a community that Paul is striving to build here. End quote. This connection between sexual sin and greed makes sense to me. If we take just the slightest step back from what we've learned to take for granted, we can see that connection all around us. Everything is for sale in our culture, right? And everything is immediately available in almost limitless variety. And all of it can be ours. And we want it. We're taught to want it. To feel less than whole if we don't have it. Diminished, inferior, uncool, unwanted, unattractive, and ultimately unsatisfied. Like it or not, admit it or not, our economic system is dependent upon greed. It's dependent upon consumption. It needs growth to survive. And it will do anything to continue that growth, whether enslaving workers in the global south or luring our children to shop till they drop. The global economy is insatiable in its appetite, and it depends upon that same insatiability in us for its own survival. As Walsh and Kiesmatt write, and I quote, we need to be clear that sexual practices are always of a piece with broader socioeconomic practices. It is precisely an ideology of unlimited economic growth that engenders an insatiable sexual practice of unlimited partners. This is why Paul connects sexual sin with covetousness. In our culture, the unrestrained economic greed of global market capitalism pimps sexual promiscuity along with its entertainment products, communication systems, automobiles, and running shoes. Turn on your TV, open a magazine, and you'll see exactly what they mean. So it is that what I grew up believing to be private personal corruptions of the body and the spirit are in fact the sins of empire. In this case, the empire of global consumption, an empire which thrives on greed and entices every one of us to be greedy in turn, to get our share and then some, a greed which is in stark relief these days as we witness the Wall Street meltdown and see our legislators scrambling to rescue us. That empire of greed and self-gratification had a grip on the Colossians. It was the way things were. It was the natural facts of life in first century Colossae. And that same empire in different form, but not substance, has its grip on us too. Which is, I think, why questions about how we spend our money and what we buy with it and what we own and where we live and what kind of car we drive are about as welcome as questions about our sexual habits. 
They touch us in very similar, if not the same, place. And they call into question our sense of self-worth and the clarity of our own self-perception, which I think ought to make us all sit up and listen when Paul tells us to put those things to death, to put to death whatever makes it easy or excusable to use another person for our own gratification, to put to death whatever it is which makes us think we are what we own or what we buy or what our children achieve. And that the only thing between us and fulfillment is that brand new, shiny, desirable, imperially manufactured thing. If you have been raised with Christ, put those things away. Tear off the strings which bind you to them. Or in the words of the poet Wendell Berry, secede, secede from the empire. Turn our backs on it. Walk away from it. Cultivate what Walsh and Kiesmott call an ethic of secession. Walk away from anger, from wrath, from malice, from slander, from abusive language. Stop using the language of violence, language used to justify exploitation, abuse, and to salve your consciences when you benefit from another's suffering. Stop wounding others with your tongues. Stop repeating the same old lies we've learned by heart. Stop pretending that everything is okay and that God blesses whatever makes us happy. Stop acting as though Jesus lives in your heart and no place else. Stop telling each other that the empire really isn't all that bad after all. Walk away. Walk away. Secede from this kind of falsehood that belongs, Paul says, in the grave. Because all those things that we think separate us, all those things the empires of this world have constructed to keep us intent on taking care of ourselves and our kind and our nation and nobody else, all of those lies are just that. They are lies. Lies which serve the empire by keeping us engaged in competition against each other as we pursue what we've been taught is a zero-sum game with the winner taking the spoils. Walk away. Put it away. Put that way of looking at yourselves and the world to death because that's where it belongs. Such ways of talking and seeing and believing and behaving are not worthy of you. You who have been raised up in Christ, who put on a new self, a self being remade in the very image of God. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. And now look around. Where you used to see Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slaves and free, you see now only one thing, and that is Christ who is in all. And so in verses 10 and 11, Paul makes a transition and calls the Colossians from what Walsh and Keys might call an ethic of secession to an ethic of community. Paul calls the Colossians not only to move away, to walk away, to secede from the empire and its ways of thinking and being. Paul now calls the Colossians and us to walk towards something, to begin to live as though what we say about Jesus and our relationship to him is, in fact, true, to create a community which reflects that truth and so reveals an alternative to the empire and that is the kingdom of God. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Against the backdrop of empire, in the presence of the power of death, in the face of the many ways in which the empire continues to hold sway in the lives of the believers then and now, Paul offers this, a new community. He does not call the Colossians to a militant or aggressive posture in relation to the empire. He doesn't command them to seek its overthrow. He doesn't tell them to get out there and save the empire. He doesn't command them to bring about the last days. He tells them to build a community, a community founded on what already has been done in Christ, a community which will reveal the truth of Christ to everyone they meet, a community which reflects the way of Jesus and so the very image of God, a community which looks out for and tends to the needs of everyone it meets, a community that understands what it is to suffer and so does what it can to relieve the suffering of others, a community which seeks to lift one another up, whose first impulse is to be kind, a community which is unmoved by appeals to vanity or glory or self-congratulation, a community which knows that its character is best revealed by the way it cares for its weakest members, a community which does not lose sight of the length of the journey or the home that awaits us at journey's end, a community which does not live by what is expedient or efficient or practical or mercenary, but abides and endures and stays the course for the sake of those coming after. A community of love, clothed in love. A community wrapped in the very spirit of Christ, which is love. A community so clothed will be able to be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient. A community so clothed will necessarily seek to replicate itself, wearing that same love wherever it goes, inviting everyone around to be welcome, revealing what it means to die to the world and to live again in Christ. A community which understands itself to be a recipient of a most precious and undeserved gift. A community filled with gratitude, therefore. A gratitude felt by anyone lost and dying, but then miraculously saved. A community which never takes that gift for granted and never mistakes the giver for some other god and never acts as though it is now the primary dispenser of that gift. A community that knows that it and every member within it is a gift from God whose desire it is to make something from nothing and call it good. A community that worships, that's devoted to the reading of Scripture and the wisdom of the Spirit as it's revealed in the lives and words of sisters and brothers. A community that sings and laughs and praises God together and without embarrassment. A community which offers in every act, from Sunday morning worship to Monday evening meals, to Sunday school classes, to mentoring breakfast, to commission meetings, to visitations of the sick, to a kind word to a friend, to an invitation to a meal, to a shoulder to cry on, a community which does everything, everything in the name of Jesus and for the glory of God. This is Paul's response to the empire, to the powers and principalities, to the false gods and the temptations of this world. Not an army, but a community 
God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, a city on a hill, a light shining in the darkness, a sign of God's continued activity in the world, a word of hope in a world where hope is otherwise unaffordable. And so it is to this that we are called, to the building of a community which resembles the image of God in Christ. And as we learn to live in compassion, humility, kindness, meekness, and with patience, as we clothe ourselves in love, as we live these ways, not only with sisters and brothers in Christ, but wherever we go, we will discover what it really means to be alive. For the first time, we will know what it means to be alive. And we will find it increasingly easy to turn away from the old things, the deadly things, the things which still have their grip on us. That grip will weaken over time. In the creating and building and living into the new community, we will one day find that our secession from the empire is complete. Now, it may take Jesus coming to break this final hold. But one day our community will be what God intends and our secession will be complete. And so we get to work now in the in-between time with that hope in mind and that promise in our hearts. We get to work, but we don't do this work on our own strength. This is not just a more pious version of the pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps mythology of the American empire. This is not a commodity that we can purchase on the global market, some do-it-yourself community building kit guaranteed or our money back. No. We do not do this on our own strength. Never on our own strength will we secede from empire and build a faithful community, but we do not rely on our own strength. Please note what Paul says over and over and over again in this little letter to the Colossians. Christ is all and in all. It is through Christ that all was made in heaven and on earth. We were made alive in Christ. Christ is our life. Christ is our life. Christ is our life. We have good reason to be thankful and to offer everything we do to Jesus. Because without him, we would have nothing. Without him, we would be nothing. We would still be slaves to empire, making bricks and without hope. But that was before. And then we died. And we were raised. And we're called to live faithfully in this in-between time when the empire seems to reign but is destined, oh, we know it's destined to bend its knee any day now to the one we call Lord. If all this is true, and I pray it is, I hope it is, I believe it is, then we can say without a doubt that Christ will give us what we need to become the kind of people we are called to become. We have our work to do. And as Mennonites, we like that fact. We like getting our hands dirty. But it's not entirely up to us. Because this community, the global community, belongs to Jesus. And he will see to it that one day we will look just like him, just like the very image of God. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.